Welcome to Bunny Hugs and Mental Health, the podcast that deals with all things mental health. We talk to professionals, survivors, and loved ones about their sometimes informative, sometimes uplifting, and sometimes tragic stories. I'm your host of the show, Todd Runnebaum, advocate, recovering addict, experienced sufferer of depression and anxiety, and author of the children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Hi everyone, I am Todd Rennebaum and this is Bunny Hugs and Mental Health. This week I have another amazing guest, uh, but first I just want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, this is episode number 10. Uh, honestly, when I started this whole thing, I thought I'd maybe do three or four episodes and just, you know, leave it at that, do a small series. But uh, you know what, I'm hooked. I love it. I love talking to interesting people. I love uh learning uh, things about stuff I didn't know about mental health and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for, for uh, being part of this and uh, watching me grow. Well, not me grow, but watching the podcast grow, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, if you this is two years down the road and uh, you're just catching on, thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks for catching on. I'd especially like to thank uh, Kaylee Kiki Gladys, that's her Instagram handle. Uh, a, a very thank you for a very special thank you for listening. Uh, she had uh, shared some stuff and sent me some very nice messages. And actually, she's going to be a guest on the show in a few weeks. But this week on this episode, I am speaking to Angela Singer. She's a lovely young lady, and she has, uh, or she's in recovery from addictions. Uh, eating disorder and also she is uh, working on her borderline personality disorder um, she tells her story about dealing with all those things and some uh, uh, childhood traumas and uh, yeah she discusses and lets us know how how she dealt with all this and uh, you know it's an inspiring story because she's in recovery of all of these things so uh, it is possible to recover so without further ado I give you Angela Singer. If you don't mind, could you tell your story about the sexual abuse, the self-harm, the eating disorder, the addiction, and all that? Just go back as far as you'd like and kind of tell your story. Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess where my kind of demise started, I was about five or six years old, Um I was sexually abused at a soup kitchen and a lady from the church that we were attending had noticed what was happening. So she pulled me aside and, you know, did the thing, explained that what happened wasn't right. You shouldn't let people touch you there. But then she said that I shouldn't have been wearing the shirt that I was because it was kind of had some holes in it and stuff. And she told me that that kind of when you wear those type of clothes that that invites people to do those types of things to you. So, um, you know, and when it was happening, I honestly had no idea what was happening. Like I was too young. I didn't really know, didn't understand, I guess, but what I, I do recall very much. So in that moment, when those words were spoken to me, um, I kind of internalized everything. I, I, felt like I had just gotten in trouble. Like I was felt very ashamed of myself and I did something wrong and it was my fault. And I think that's when I really started to internalize, like, you know, a lot of bad things 
and the spiral of the shame and the self-hatred all kind of began there. Yeah, so that's kind of when I started to a lot of self-hatred and a, sh- a lot of shame. And, and I never told anybody about it either because I thought that I did a really bad thing and it was all my fault. And if I told people, then, you know, God forbid, people would know what I've done. And, you know, so I never talked about it. And of course, there was other kind of factors going on too, things at home, things at school, whatever else that, um, you know, fed into my issues. But I st- had started to cut my wrists and self-harm, I suppose, when I was, around 10 years old. So I was quite young, you know, and I don't really know what made me do it, or I don't know, it kind of provided some sense of relief. I'm not really sure how to quite explain. Um, So the self-harm started quite young. And then a couple years later, uh, the eating disorder came into play. So I would uh, bulimia with, you know, and sometimes like anorexic tendencies kind of thing. So I would make myself throw up after eating or I would binge and I would purge or I would severely restrict myself from certain foods or, you know, try and starve myself as long as I could, uh, you know, things like that. So that was around 12. And then, yes, when I got a little older, like 13, I started drinking, I guess, and then 15 drugs and alcohol. And it was just kind of a spiral from there, I suppose, with the self-harm, the eating disorder, the drugs, the alcohol, all of it at the same time, basically. Um, and then when I was 21 years old, I had ended up in the psych ward. I was not in a very good place in my life at all. Um, I was very suicidal and had a lot of issues going on. And at that time, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which I had never heard of before. Um So the lady showed me a video, like a YouTube video of this woman who had borderline personality disorder, and she was talking about her experience with it. And I just remember sitting there like crying happy tears because I resonated with pretty well everything she said. And it was honestly one of the first times in my life I felt like fully understood by somebody. And it kind of, I just kind of felt like, there was maybe an explanation for the way that I was the way that I was. And, uh, you know, so it was an interesting kind of thing. And then things got a lot worse when I got out of the hospital with the drugs and the alcohol and whatever else I ruined a lot of friendships and ruined a lot of things in my life and did a lot of things I wasn't proud of. And then when I was 22, uh, I started going to 12 step meetings. I sobered up. And then I think it was a couple of years after that, I went to treatment for the eating disorder. And that's been a few years now recovery for that. So how long have you been sober now then? Uh, be five years in October, I guess. Oh, nice. It'll be five years for me in November. Oh, really? Nice. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Did you go to any treatment centers for your addiction or it was uh, strictly just through the 12 step groups? Uh, just do the 12 step groups. I didn't go to any treatment centers for that. And what was in the, like, I don't know a whole lot about borderline personality disorder. Actually, I don't know very much at all. Um, I know you mentioned you don't really understand it either, but what was in the video that you, um, related to that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't really recall the video too well, to be honest with you. Um, how does that go? The textbook definition, there is um, 
what do they call it? The DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And mm-hmm. there's nine different criteria, basically, for borderline personality disorder. And from what I recall, if you have to meet five of the nine criteria to um, be given a, a diagnosis. So I, uh, the, the criteria, the number one thing um, is fear of abandonment, very intense fear of abandonment. So that kind of affects my ability to maintain healthy relationships. Either I am, you know, way more on the codependent side where I've got this really unhealthy attachment more so with my significant other and my pets, I would say is where that one comes into play. And then, or the complete opposite where I have always struggled to maintain, you know, long friendships over the years. And I think in the, I do, kind of stay mentally guarded almost at all times. Like, I mean, I can get along with people just fine. I have no issues, but it kind of in the back of my head, I'm always expecting that they're going to leave and that's going to be the end of that. So we better just protect ourselves here in the meantime. And, you know, kind of like a self-defense, but it's not even like a conscious choice. It's, it's just kind of comes naturally and I don't even and I I am there's still a lot I am learning and that I don't understand um and I think it and now that I'm sober too a lot of these characteristics I don't resonate with as much anymore and I have often questioned this diagnosis at times you know um because a lot of border things about borderline can you know, um, self-harm, intense mood swings, uh, eating disorders, addiction issues, unhealthy relationships, fear of abandonment. Like those are all kind of things that a lot of addicts struggle with, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. I, one person in recovery actually did tell me one time, I think I was maybe in my first or second year, but this person said to me, well, if that's borderline personality disorder, then we all have it. And it it felt very invalidating. And I was like, yeah, like, she's right. This isn't even a real thing. I don't even know, you know, but then actually I was talking to um, somebody else I know that who is also given this diagnosis. And, and I asked her, I said, how do you explain this to somebody who has never heard of it before? And she said, honestly, I just say it's kind of like bipolar, but faster. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I like that. Like, I feel, and I don't know a lot myself about bipolar specifically, so I can't really speak much to that. But from what I do understand is that the kind of ups and downs can be over a prolonged period of time. Whereas with borderline personality disorder, like I can wake up one day and feel like completely empty and hopeless and not suicidal, but you just kind of, I don't know, you got nothing to give and you don't even know why you try and think of what triggered it. You don't really know. And then the next day it's like, you're a totally different person and you're totally, you know, it's like a, it's exhausting. It's like a roller coaster, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and the intensity of the moods. That is one thing that I do understand, um, what I've been told about this diagnosis is we kind of feel everything in extremes. Um, So if something as simple, like for example, my significant other had worked out of town for 10 days in February and it was like, I was like grieving his passing every single day. Like, you know, it was just like, it was the end of my world. It was, (laughs) I'd come home from work to the empty house and I didn't even know what to do with myself. And I was just, 
just extreme, you know, whereas, you know, other people, yeah, you might miss your significant other, but you carry on with your day, you do your things, you might chat in the evening, and that's fine, you know, but it was like the end of the world to me. Mm. (laughs) So or like, just simple things that maybe shouldn't upset a person as much as you think it might. And it seems a lot bigger in my mind than it really is. And it's kind of hard then to decipher what's real and what's not when you're always feeling everything to the most extreme intensity, you know? So, um, but yeah, borderline personality disorder, it's kind of frustrating for me because I really don't understand it. And I feel if I don't understand it, then how do I correct it? Do you know what I mean? If you don't Mm -hmm. really know what's going on, um, And the thing about borderline personality disorder as well is it is a behavioral disorder. It's not a a death sentence. Behaviors can be relearned and you can recover. So, Mm. um, but again, it's kind of, if it's just learning to be self-aware and learning what is going on in your head, why are you feeling the way that I am? You know, I did partake in, um, It was a group called dialectical behavioral therapy. So I was referred to that while I was in the hospital. There's two different parts to it. And the first one is about, they talk about mindfulness, you know, paying attention to your thoughts and what happened leading up to, because before I would just go in a blind rage and I wouldn't even know why really, but to actually slow down and take the time to think, okay, what happened? Why am I feeling this way? What led to this kind of thing? And then the second part was about emotion regulation, which is, like I said, something that people with borderline personality disorder often struggle with very much so. Um, So I did find that to be quite helpful. But again, I think most helpful was being in a group of people because I've never been in the same room (laughs) with 10 other people that had the same day, you know, and so Mm -hmm. you do feel very understood when you can relate. And so to hear these other people talking, it was like, you know, it made sense to me. And I felt, I don't know, just, just the unity, right? You felt like you weren't alone and you felt understood. And I think that goes a really long way. I did find that to be very helpful. Um, But I mean, now it's kind of, what's next like what what do you do now like (laughs) I still have a lot of questions (laughs) yeah still does it make sense to me so I yeah I honestly don't talk about the borderline thing a whole heck of a lot because I I don't know how to describe it and I don't feel people understand it so then I just don't talk about it I guess (laughs) are you on medication for it specifically Uh, no no I'm not you're not on any medication no, I, I was prescribed um, some medication when I was in the psych ward. Uh, that was five years ago now. And I did take it briefly for a few months. But, you know, at that time in my life, like I was just drinking so much and doing so much drugs, like it wouldn't have really, like, I didn't think that it did anything anyway. So I just quit taking them when in all reality, the fact that I was drinking and using on a daily basis was probably what was making me feel <laughs> the way that I was. Right. Um, I know a guy that I was in um, treatment with, he told me he was diagnosed with bipolar and he thought for like years he was bipolar until he got some sober time. And he said, he kind of said like, like you're kind of saying like, I don't actually know if I'm bipolar or if it's just the effects from drinking and drugging for so many years. And now that I'm sober, you know, I don't have these uh, symptoms anymore. So 
I, I bet you a lot of people with addiction that are diagnosed with things probably do question that quite a bit, especially once they get sober. So mm-hmm. that's probably a very normal thing that you're thinking, but not to say that you do or don't have it. I'm just, you know, saying that right. it, it's very normal to second guess. Well, um, and to read, you know, to read over stuff about it now, I really don't, um, resonate with a lot of the things anymore but I think the two biggest things that are the most prevalent in my life today is probably just the the intense moods like the extremes the feelings of extremes and a very very intense fear of abandonment that affects my ability my ability sorry to maintain healthy relationships Mm -hmm. those are probably the two biggest things I really feel now right and I know like I, even I was diagnosed with chronic anxiety and depression, which I still have bad, de- you know, anxiety at times, but I got to tell you better than any medication or any treatment I took for mental, my mental health problems. The best thing I ever did was, was getting sober like that. Just a thousand times made my depression better and 150 times made my anxiety better. So I'm still on medication though, but anyway. Okay. Uh, you also had a eating disorder or diagnosed with an eating disorder. And uh, a couple episodes ago, I did talk to a professional about eating disorders and she discussed it a little bit, but she's not, she didn't have any life experience. She was just a professional, which is great to hear her side. But I, I like to hear your side with someone who who's survived an eating disorder and, and what that was like and what, what you can kind of describe about that for people maybe going through it. Yeah, so the eating disorders are kind of tricky. Um, honestly, I don't think any two eating disorder is the exact same. Uh, when I went to treatment, it was really incredible to see how many different types of people, different shapes, different sizes. You got men, you got women. Like, I think when people hear eating disorder, you kind of have this stereotypical vision in your mind of like a a female that's about 80 pounds and you can see all her ribs and that's what you think eating disorder is, you know, if you don't know a lot about it. But when I went to treatment, it was just really incredible to meet different people and hear what their experience was like, because it was completely different from mine or, you know, everybody kind of has their own quirky little habits around food or different triggers, like different foods that are safe for them, whereas it might be a complete trigger food for somebody else or, you know, so um, yeah, the eating disorder thing is, is a little bit different. But um, for my experience, I guess, so in the beginning, like when I was young, it would just kind of be like a once in a while, like when I was 12, and it was all first starting, like if I overate a little bit too much at a holiday dinner or something, I would sneak off to the bathroom, and I would make myself throw up or, you know, so it kind of started off like that. And then it progressed over the years, I would say, you know, going into high school, um, it started to become more frequent. And then I would, if I say I had the house to myself or something, I would try, I would eat as much food as I could. Like I would just totally binge on all this food. And then I would make myself throw up intentionally knowing that that's what I was going to do going into it. Or I would just restrict myself. You know, I kind of went through phases with it. Like I would go through phases where I would only eat like a handful of different things. And if I ate anything outside of that, even if I didn't binge, 
binge on it. It was just not something that was one of my safe foods. I would still get rid of it. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a back and forth. And a lot of people too, I feel, think that eating disorders are about like, you know, like a really vain obsession with your body and how you look and whatever else. And honestly, it's quite, quite opposite, really. It comes from a very deep rooted place of self-hatred and you, you hate the way you look, you hate, and it's, and it's so much deeper than just the way you look. It's all about you yourself as a person. And you don't just hate your body. You hate everything about you, you know? And I've also heard that eating disorders are about control, which when I first heard that was very kind of curious to me because when I was, you know, in the middle of a food binge, I did not feel like I had, I was in any time kind of control. If anything, it was quite the opposite. I felt like the food was in control of me. Um, mm -hmm. But I think when it came to the binging and the purging, for me, it was more about a numbing in that kind of a sense. But then when I was starving myself and restricting myself, it is, it was an empowering kind of feeling. You did feel like you were in control, like over yourself and your body and I denied myself this food and you know when you get so hungry that your stomach kind of starts to feel like it's you know eating itself almost and and you do feel a sense of control and a sense of power and I think it becomes just kind of a coping mechanism back and forth between feeling like you are powerful and in control and then feeling completely powerless and just numbing out you know so Again, though, everybody's experience with the eating disorders and the food is so different um, towards the end. Like it was really bad. Like I would wake up in the morning and it would be very similar to like the addiction, like with the drugs and the alcohol. Like I would wake up in the morning and I would say, okay, Angela, we're not going to binge today. You're not going to make yourself throw up today. We're going to do different this time. You know, like I, at that point in the game, like it was 12 years, I guess, for the entirety of my eating disorder. And you know, by the end, it was, I didn't feel like I had a choice in it almost. It, it just consumed me. And I knew in the morning when I woke up with a fresh mind that I didn't want to do this. But then uh, as the day would go on or whatever would happen, come up throughout my day or even just an opportunity would arise to binge and purge or whatever, like all of a sudden there you are and you're in it. And it was different, like not different, but it was interesting for me too. But if I say binged and purged once and it was earlier in the day, anything I ate after that, I would throw up. So mm -hmm. if I did it once, the whole day was pretty well a write-off. I, I would just continue or say I was at home all day by myself. Like I said, if I did it once, you know, I would get rid of it and then I would kind of whatever, try and relax and hang out and maybe make it about an hour. Next thing you know, I'm back in it again. And it's like, I don't know, just that attitude. Well, you already did it once and then everything else was just, so then I would try and make it as late in the day as I could. Like I would really try that this time, you know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was a such a miserable place to be because you need food for your whole day. Like your body needs food. It, and then when you have such an unhealthy relationship with it and your whole day, you need food, you know, you are just, it's like you're there food in one way or the other when you know if I was in a starving myself kind of phase you know 
and denying myself food. I was aware of how hungry I was, but I just wouldn't let myself have it. And then I would lay awake there at night. If I didn't eat that day, I would lay awake there at night and I couldn't sleep. And I would be planning my next binge in my head for when I was out of this phase. And, you know, it was just absolute insanity your whole day. And you think too, how many social gatherings, how many, you know, meals that are shared as a way of socialization and thing it's everywhere food is everywhere you know so mm-hmm. when you're constantly triggered by the one thing that you're around all day you know it's yeah it's a wild place to be i would yeah it was it was very miserable that's for sure so between the eating disorder and the addiction i mean your your mind was pretty busy all day yeah and it was interesting how the addiction kind of and the eating disorder played into each other too like if i was say smoking marijuana and you get the munchies or whatever well there you go you can just binge and purge and it doesn't even matter you know um whereas you know i used to abuse a lot of pharmaceutical drugs and things like that too where those kind of things kind of suppress your appetite so then oh if i'm just going to be you know abusing these drugs and then I don't have an appetite well I would just kind of feed off of that as long as I could I would go you know so then I wouldn't have to feel hungry I would just sniff these pills or do whatever else and so it kind of went back and forth and the drugs tied into the eating disorder very much so um yeah Hmm. Um, do you think the eating disorder had something to do with your sexual trauma Mm, I think there was I don't want to blame everything on the sexual trauma. There was a lot of other factors going on, um, you know, at home and and in school and things like that too. I think I just never knew how to cope and I never talked about anything. I never felt safe. I never felt understood and I internalized everything. And so I was basically just a ticking time bomb waiting to happen. And then you know, in my young mind, I found these things that I thought made me feel better. And I associated that with feeling better. And this is helping, you know, so I would do those things instead. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel the sexual abuse definitely didn't help anything for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) To answer your question, when you're told something like that, and that becomes one of your core beliefs at a very young age, absolutely, that feels a self-hatred and the eating disorder and those type of things. Right. Uh, what, what does treatment for eating disorder look like? Is it kind of like addictions? Like it's a lot of talk therapy and stuff? Um, yeah, I think it's similar. Uh, I never did go to treatment for the like drugs and alcohol, so I don't know exactly to compare, but there's only one place in Saskatchewan. That's it. Um, And basically, yeah, there was a structure to your day, you would get up, you would, you know, have your breakfast, your group therapy, your different activities you would do, there would be downtime, you know, so I imagine it's the same kind of similar model as uh, drug and alcohol rehab kind of situation. Um, But it was interesting to me, none of the counselors there had ever had an eating disorder before. Hmm. And I... And it wasn't like a conscious choice again that I made in my head, but I like not as much now, but more so then when you're on like a full on survival mode and I feel like you're not going to understand me, I'm not even going to bother trying, you know? So I found more help 
out of being around other men and women that understood what I was going through. And I would honestly go and talk to them before maybe the, the staff or anything like that, because I didn't feel like they would understand, but that again, they were wonderful people. They were very helpful. They were, they were very capable of doing their jobs, but just with my own stuff in my head, that's kind of how it worked for me. Where is that treatment center? What's that town called again? Milden? <laughs> Bridgepoint. Huh. Well, I, for some reason, I thought it was in Saskatoon, the hospital or something. Uh, I, I, I don't know much about the hospital. The hospital approach is very different. Like Bridgepoint was a very comfortable kind of cozy home kind of atmosphere. Um they like the the stipulations that they did have there was that you needed to at least eat something and you needed to be sleeping because you know you're kind it's kind of a liability almost if you're so they would encourage you to sit and eat with everybody and whatever that looked like for you whether it was like a banana or whatever like anything it was kind of and for the for people like myself who struggled with bulimia like they weren't locking the doors in the bathroom after meal times whereas i think like the hospital approach is a bit more you know institutionalized whereas this was they basically said that these are the coping mechanisms that got you here and we are here to kind of help you with why the why not the not the coping mechanism but the why so hmm. they didn't stop you from doing anything whereas you know i I was kind of went in with the attitude, like, I don't like being here. I want to go home and I'm going to get this done and I'm going to do it. And that's it. We're done. Like, so while I was in treatment, I didn't go and I didn't like purge or anything like that. But if I felt like that's what I had to do in that moment, there was nobody stopping me from doing that. They were just there to support you and to help you and understand why you were doing the things that you were doing and try and focus on that part instead kind of thing. So it was a very different approach, but I think it was very helpful because it does make you feel kind of like you do have some control, right? Like I can do this if I want to, but I'm here to get better. So I'm choosing not to. That was kind of how it worked for me, basically. And at the point that you went to treatment, were you having any, uh, any physical effects from the eating disorder? Um, no, I've heard, you know, lots of stories like your hair can fall out, your teeth can rot and all these really horrible medical things that can happen. And I think I was pretty fortunate that I had never experienced any of those things. But then I think too, maybe if I had, it would have been, it would have brought me to a rock bottom sooner than 12 years, I guess. So no, I was pretty fortunate that I, um, I walked away with no no major issues from it not to say that you know it can't it can happen to anybody right because I, I have met other people who you know can't have kids they have this PCOS or whatever either rotten or they're you know different things your throat can be completely damaged forever you know I've heard all kinds of stories but I think I was fairly fortunate in my situation hmm. well that's good mm -hmm. um what was I gonna ask oh could you talk about how you got into the 12 step groups? Like I read in the article, uh, one of the articles that you did about, uh, about how your aunt kind of got you there and her story. And Yeah. So, um, 
got to back it up now. It gets kind of, as the years go by, it gets a little bit, what was the timeline again? <laughs> so when I was 21, like I said, I had been uh, in the psych ward and had that whole experience. When I got out of the hospital, I had ended up moving back home uh, with my dad. He lives on an acreage outside of Regina. That's where we all grew up. So, um, and you know, I thought that was kind of my rock bottom was the hospital, right? But then I got out, I moved back to the acreage with my dad. That's like my happy place, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And but that, and then I really started drinking and using every single day. Like it was, I, I really, in, like I'm an introvert by nature, <laughs> socially awkward human being. I am all for the being alone in the middle of nowhere thing. But then it like, I didn't even want to the social aspect of the drugs and alcohol, I didn't even want that anymore. I just would prefer to be at home by myself and I would drink and I would use and I would go for walks to the valley and I would, you know, it was a total escape for me. But it, but it, it was horrible. It got really out of hand. Um, you know, I probably honestly wouldn't be here today if it weren't for my dad and my older brother too was living at home at the time for the first uh, little bit of that and, you know, I put them through some really horrible things. And anyways, so that went on for, when was that? It was almost a year probably. And I knew that I was spiraling. I knew that, you know, my life was entirely out of control. I was ruining friendships and I was hurting my family and myself. Um, I had been arrested. They were going to charge me with assault. Like all these really horrible things. Spent the night in the drunk tank. Like, you know, when is enough enough, right? Mm -hmm. And my uh, auntie she lived in Musha and she had been in Regina for, she was in Regina for something. And I remember meeting with her, she was getting a tattoo done and I went there with her and she was part of the 12 step programs uh, in Musha. And I remember we were standing outside afterwards and I was just crying to her and, you know, my life is so out of control and I can't stop drinking and, you know, whatever. Right. And, and she just said to me, you know, like, I will never pressure you to come or do anything you don't want to do. But if you want to come out to Moose Jaw and come to a 12-step meeting with me, I'd be happy to take you. She had these pamphlets randomly in her car that she gave me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, okay, thank you. I took them and I went home and kind of tossed them in my dresser. And I, I just, I, I wasn't, and I never touched them again. I didn't look at them again. I just kind of, I wasn't ready to to stop, I guess I, I was in this weird kind of limbo where I knew my life was totally out of control and that I needed to stop. But at the same time, I was totally consumed by these substances. And I felt like I couldn't stop. And I, part of me honestly didn't want to because I wanted those, but I also wanted to be happy and all these other things. And, you know, you can't have it all. Right? <laughs> those two things don't go hand in hand. <laughs> That's so right. I guess I just, I didn't want to put in the work. I didn't want to put in the effort. It was too hard. I didn't want to stop. I wanted to be still drinking and using and doing what I was doing kind of thing. But, you know, I also knew I was miserable. So anyways, um, if, I think it was a couple months later yet. I, I hadn't talked to her again after that. And then she actually, uh, she passed away. She had a brain aneurysm very suddenly. And that was the last time that I had seen her or talked to her. Um, and so then I think I felt, well, a lot of things, obviously, the grief and the pain and the emotions, but I also felt a lot of guilt too, because I, 
I felt like I should have gone to that meeting with her. I should have made the time to go and see her. I should have this, I should have that, you know, all those things that go through your head when you lose somebody unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. So I had contacted one of her friends and found out which meeting she had attended in Musha, which one was their home group. And so I had come out, uh, my sister actually came with me too. We had come out to Musha for that meeting. Um, and I don't really know why I went. I, I think I just was looking for some type of closure or I I don't really know. I felt like I should have gone while she was still alive, but I should go now just kind of to honor her memory. And I didn't really think that I would keep going back. Like <laughs> I thought I was just going to go to that one night and I was going to do my thing and feel my closure and see you later kind of. But then... The, just the tight knit community that it was, they all knew who she was. And I had introduced myself, said who I was. And, you know, there was a handful of people specifically that came up to me afterwards. And like, I don't know, it was just kind of a surreal thing. There was one girl in particular. Um, she's kind of my sponsor now, I guess she, it, the whole time that she was sharing, it was like she was looking straight across at me the whole entire time. And it was like there was nobody else in the room. You know, it was she was just kind of talking to me and nobody else was there. And I just felt like, oh, my gosh, everything she said that came out of her mouth was exactly what I was feeling and thinking and experiencing. And I was kind of freaked out a little bit, to be honest with you, you know, <laughs> But I think just the outpouring of support that I got afterwards and, and you know, there was a few other people, too, that came up to me and and I connected with them right away. And it was just really kind of surreal. And I ended up coming back. No, I didn't go back the next week. But the week after that, I kind of I showed up again and then I started coming every Monday. That was the only meeting I ever went to. I didn't even at the time I was still living outside of Regina. I didn't even go to Regina meetings. I just drove to Moose Jaw <laughs> and went to that one meeting a week, you know. Mm. Um, and it took some time. Like it was, when did I start going? It was in July, my very first meeting there. Um, and it wasn't until October that I actually quit drinking. Like I would try, I would string together a week or two here and there. I think I even made it a couple months at one point and then I relapsed again. And so it, like it did take a few tries, I think, um, before it actually stuck. But yeah, that's kind of what, what got me to those meetings, I guess, was uh, my auntie that had passed away there. So hmm. that was a good story. Um, so now we've talked about borderline personality disorder, your eating disorder and your addictions. Um, and you kind of gave some ages. You're 25 now, is that right? Uh, 26. Oh, you're 26. Okay. Just to give people a perspective of what, where you are and how long you've been doing this. Um, so what, what's life like now? What are, what are you up to? Are you, are you working? Is life good? Are you still going to meetings? Stuff like that. Um, well, life now is okay. It's certainly better than it was. It's constant work in progress, I guess. I, I work... Um, I'm in Moose Jaw now as well. I did eventually end up meeting somebody here who is fantastic. We've been together the last three, four, three and a half years, I guess. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I like it in Moose Jaw. It's small, it's quiet, it's you know, right up my alley. I work full time and I support people with mental health and addiction issues. And I have a casual job as well where I uh, support people who have 
you know, different degrees of special needs. A lot of the guys are Valley View residents that I work with. Um, that's kind of my work experience background, I suppose, is uh, working with adults that have special needs. And then I've been at my full-time job here for the last year. It seemed kind of a step in the right direction, working with the addictions and mental health. Um, I'll be going to school this fall for psych nursing. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm definitely a lot more stable than I used to be, that's for sure. And <laughs> <laughs> physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, the borderline thing, though, it still kind of creeps up. I think that's kind of the biggest uh barrier I think in my life now is just managing the the highs and the lows and kind of riding it out and figuring it out and that type of thing anxiety still very prevalent in my world um <laughs> I've also noticed this is a side note I don't know if it's really relevant but since I've been sober I seem to have developed this really weird OCD about keeping my house clean <laughs> huh. Which is pretty bizarre because, I mean, in the worst of my addiction, like you couldn't even see the floor in my bedroom. I would like have plates and, you know, chip crumbs in my bed and pet <laughs> hair and like I lived in my own filth and I just, you know, but I don't know. I've been told that the whole cleaning thing is also like a form of control, right? And then if my house gets too dirty or I don't sweep the floor, I get like really angst, like anxiety. Like, right. I don't know. It's bizarre. Can't go to bed if there's a dish in my sink. Like, I don't know. So there's <laughs> that. <laughs> Maybe the clean house represents you being clean. So if the house is getting dirty, then, you know, you're, you feel like you're maybe slipping in your addiction and mental health issues again or something. Yeah, it could be. I really, I really don't know something I can control, I guess. I think, you know, when you go about your days and, and there's so many things you can't control your, your, you know, confrontations with people, your, your job, different things, or your tra like traffic, like there's so many things you can't control, right? It just is what it is. And, I don't know. I think people kind of just latch on to things that they can control and it kind of makes you feel comforted almost. I don't know. It's, yeah. I don't know how to explain it, but. How, actually, how, how often do you say the serenity prayer? <laughs> Honestly, it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that next time I'm power cleaning my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can control that. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, it's great that you're you're working in mental health and addictions and get kind of giving back and learning from your life experience and letting out, you know, helping others because of your life experience. So that's that's really fantastic. Well, yeah, um, thank you. I, I find it is is helpful when it comes to helping people like that when you can understand it, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I work at a Pine Lodge in the treatment center too, and it's. It's like the first job I ever walked into on day one, and I, I felt like I was already good at my job because yeah, no I just kidding. have that experience. You don't have to train me on how to be an alcoholic. I just already know and or a drug <laughs> addict or whatever. And so Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, so going through the, the mental health system in a few different ways, uh, do you feel the Saskatchewan, like the province, is doing enough to treat mental health and addictions? Uh, with the, um, like the health authority? Um, you know, I'm not a, a 
too overly political person. I don't really have like facts and numbers and things to back <laughs> back this up. So this is strictly my very limited opinion from my own firsthand experience. Yep. There's definitely not enough resources, that's for sure. Like when I was in the hospital, that group that they had referred me to, the Dialectical Behavioral Therapy Group, I think it took me about a year to get into that. Um, and what else was there? When I was going to treatment for my eating disorder, they wanted me to have a, a counselor to just so I had some support when I came back home. Right. Um, and I remember calling, I was working in Regina at the time, and I called that whatever EFAP or whatever, the free counseling thing through the work. And it was this place in Regina, and I called them saying that I needed to be connected with a counselor. I told them my diagnosis and I was actually refused really? <laughs> or denied. They said that they don't work with people who have borderline personality disorder because they don't know enough about it. And I'm like, cool, that makes two of us. Like, <laughs> wow. like And I did feel, and I remember I got quite upset on the phone. I told the lady, I says, I'm not a monster, you know, like I just need some help. And oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. We just, we, we don't know how to, we don't, you know, I forget exactly what she said, but basically we don't know enough about it to support people with that. And yeah. And I just hung up the phone and I was just like, I just, I just got denied a free counselor. <laughs> yeah, that's bizarre. And you, you do really feel like, so anyways, I ended up, there was, um, and a, a, the fellow who was the addictions counselor at my high school in Regina growing up, Teed, he actually, I was in touch with him quite, quite often in those days. And he agreed to sign off for me. They said that was okay. Cause I called them. I'm like, listen, like I tried to get a counselor <laughs> and it didn't go well. So, <laughs> so he ended up signing for me so that I could go to treatment and that was all good and fine. And then uh, when I got out of Bridgepoint is when I did the second part of the dialectical behavioral therapy and they had referred me because I had asked like the the people who ran that group, I asked if I could get referred to a counselor, particularly someone who had experience, you know, working with people with eating disorders or borderline personality disorder, either, either one I would have been content with. And I think, and so they sent off the referral and I think it took almost a year for that too. So Wow. When I, I out of the blue one day and I kind of like, you know, I, I got a little more stable on my feet and the eating disorder thing. It, it was kind of becoming a thing of, you know, a distant memory. It wasn't controlling my life anymore. I wasn't white knuckling it through every single day anymore. And so I get a call out of the blue and it was this. Yeah, they were going to this mental health place in Regina and do you, are you still interested in a counselor? And I thought, Oh, I kind of forgot about it, honestly, but I mean, Hey, I waited a year. I may as well, <laughs> you know, still take the opportunity, even though I was at a better place. Right. And, and I saw a person, this person for about a month and at the end of one of our sessions, um, this person told me that they felt we should take a break. So I, when you hear break, you think that it's going to resume sometime, right? So I said, okay, well, I must be doing all right then. Like, when do you want to see me again? And then, and then it was just really bizarre. Then this person was like, oh, well, here's a business card. I'm actually moving departments. If you need anything, call this number. And I was just like, 
kind of dumbfounded. I'm like, are you breaking up with me in the most like it's not you, it's me kind of way? Like what is happening right now? And that was the end of that. I didn't even take the business card and like kind of back to the borderline thing. Like we have a very deep rooted fear of abandonment. And here's this counselor that I, I really liked this person. And I thought it was going really well. And all of a sudden, just like that, <laughs> see you later. Good luck. And so I was just, and honestly, I haven't seeked out any kind of counseling since because I thought this is bizarre. Like how, where do you go to get help? You know, and I've had, some pretty rocky phases over, you know, since then where I've felt kind of desperate. Like, I didn't think I need to see somebody. I think I need to talk to somebody. I don't know what to do, but then I kind of have this attitude like, well, nobody's going to help me. You know, where do I go? Where do I talk to? Do I get a referral and wait a year? Well, my problem might be resolved by then. Who knows? It might be worse. I don't know. Like, so you do feel kind of, it's a very lonely system to navigate when, you know, I don't know. And then, of course, you hear all kinds of stories trying to get into treatment centers and there's a wait list a mile long. Or I know like the detox, um, you have to you call to get on the wait list and then you have to call every day before noon to hold your spot. Otherwise, you're off the wait list. You know, some of the people I support, they want to get into the detox, but then you're kind of asking a lot from somebody with severe mental health issues and addiction issues. And yes, they want to get clean. They want to get better. But now they are having to phone every day before noon. Well, something like that to a stable person might not seem like a big deal. But when, you know, I think of myself when I was in the worst part of my addiction and some days I'd be lucky to be awake even before noon or coherent before noon, you know, or it just seems like such a big task. Like, why can't you just be on a wait list and just get in when your your time comes? You know, it's just, it is a very bizarre thing. And even this whole, like with the bridge point, there's, it was a great place. It, it really helped me, but there's only one place in all of Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's just, yeah, there could be a lot more for sure, more resources, more, you know, I don't know. But again, like I said, I don't know facts and numbers and statistics to really back that up. But no, that's, that's fine. I just want to know what your experience was like trying to navigate it. And if you felt it was uh, adequate. Yeah, no, it was, it was not great. But honestly, I think the most help that I've got throughout my journey here of recovery is just talking to people, other people who are in the same situations as me or who have had similar experiences. And that has honestly done more for me than I feel the mental health system has, because I mean, I feel like the mental health system has kind of let me down every time, whereas to feel understood, and to meet people who get it, and you can talk to, I mean, that goes a long way for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's you and everyone else I talk to kind (laughs) of says the same thing about uh, their experience with the mental health or addiction system in Saskatchewan. So it's a real shame. Um, Mm -hmm. I just lost someone this week who was, they were waiting on a wait list for a good five or six months to see a counselor and now they're gone. So it's a, Yeah, it's pretty intense. Yeah, Um, that should never be happening, something like that. Yeah. No, I know. And, yeah, I could go on and on. I think part of, uh, like you said, talking with people that have uh, similar experiences is really healthy. I think part of that is also complaining about the system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, eh? (laughs) So... 
that's my final question. You can always, if I missed anything or you want to add more, go ahead. But um, what do you want people to maybe who have experienced sexual assault or eating disorders or addictions, borderline personality, what do you want them to know so to maybe avoid some of the things that you did or, or even navigating the system? Uh, well, navigating the system, I guess I don't have much helpful advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I really don't know. I think it would have been helpful to, to be told, you know, it's not your fault and it's okay to talk about it. I think those two things um, are very key because I've always blamed myself for everything and taken the different, you know, the self harm and everything else. Like you punish yourself for being the way that you are and why you are the way that you are and the talking about it. Yeah. You know, I always was ashamed to talk about it. I was ashamed to talk about where I was at in my life because it wasn't perfect. And, you know, God forbid it's not perfect or people are going to judge me or I'm going to care about what people think or, you know, actually what I forgot to mention this part right before I had sobered up um, in October there, 2016, I had come into work one day, particularly hungover. I had been wearing long, I was wearing long sleeve shirt in the summertime or the, you know, a warm fall day or whatever, because mm -hmm. I had self-harmed the night before in the midst of my bender. And, you know, I come into this work, my workplace and I'm like shaking and just a mess. And, Turns out we were having some big like mental health and addictions presentation that day that nobody told me about. <laughs> mm. And it was this, this fellow from Saskatoon, Alan Keller. He mm -hmm. really impacted my life that day. I walk in, like I said, I'm a hot mess and I'm sitting in the front row because I'm late and there's nowhere else to sit. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like he opened his mouth and my whole story came out of it. And it was like a lot of the things he said I really resonated with and that was one of the big things he was kind of tossing out these you know little stress balls and stuff like interacting throughout his presentation and I caught this like little mini squishy stress ball thing and it said um, this is your journey come out of the shadows and that was one of his big things was talking facilitates healing and like I was shook like <laughs> mm -hmm. I go up to him after I'm crying and you know <laughs> just a mess but i will i will always remember him i will always remember that day i will always remember that phrase talking facilitates healing and that little stress ball i still have it this is your journey come out of the shadows and i think you do live a lot of you know these shameful experiences you want to keep in the shadows and they don't have to be because so many people have actually been through it too like and you don't realize that so yeah that's what i would say anybody you know it, it was never your fault and it's okay to talk about it. Thank you again so much, Angela. Uh, I, that's a, an amazing story. I am so proud of you and happy for you uh, that you are in recovery and, and doing well in life. Um, it's truly inspiring, and I hope uh, others out there are inspired and, uh, you know, realize that no matter what you're going through, it is possible to, to recover and be happy. Now my guest next week is a good friend of mine. I've known him for oh, about 25 years. His name is Dan Scharflug. I think I said his last name right. 
<laughs> I've known him for 25 years and I'm still not exactly sure how to say his last name, but uh, I think it's something like that. Uh, it's pretty darn close anyway. Uh, he is um, a veteran. He spent time in Afghanistan and in the military, of course. Uh, and so he's suffering from PTSD. Uh, he's had some anxiety issues kind of throughout his life a little bit too. We discussed that a bit. Uh, and yeah, he tells his story and what he's up to now, kind of what PTSD looks like and feels like, what some treatments are. So uh, it's, it's another really great uh, story with another interesting guest. If you were listening to this on Apple Podcasts, can you please, please rate and review this uh, podcast? It's not for my ego. It isn't. I mean, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, it's, it's, what it does is put me higher on the charts and it does, I don't know what it does exactly, but, um, it looks good. So then when I try to get more guests, I uh, book guests, then, you know, they look at the rating, they check it out and go, oh yeah, yeah, I do that show. That's great. This guy gets good reviews. Uh, and also it, it makes it easier for other people to find the, the podcast, so, you know, I think I'm very passionate about the podcast. I think it's a lot of important people are talking about important stuff. So why not help people to find the podcast and, you know, maybe help them. Thank you for listening. This episode has been sponsored by Regina Plumbing and Heating. Call 306-585-2000 for all your plumbing, heating and cooling needs. If you are having a mental health crisis, please call the Canadian Crisis Number at 1-833-456-4566. In Saskatchewan, the mobile crisis team in Prince Albert is 306-764-1011. In Regina, it's 306-525-5333. And in Saskatoon, it's 306-933-6200. Don't forget to check out my children's book, Sometimes Daddy Cries. Sometimes Daddy Cries is told through the eyes of a boy whose father suffers from depression. He sees his dad get sad, rest, and even go to the hospital, all while comparing his father's depression to a physical ailment. Available on Amazon.ca. I'll see you next time. This is Todd Redebaum saying, make your beds and take your meds. Bye! Bye!